0: Do you want healthier relationships, more intimate sex? Sometimes we have to get closer to ourselves to get close to others. Let's talk on intimate interactions. Go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon to unlock every second episode of this podcast as well as tons of premium content. Today we'll be talking about anxiety, emotional management, introversion, and trauma. I explain the window of tolerance and some somatic exercises that I recently learned in counseling to get out of my head and back into my body. This is a common problem for people who suffer trauma. Distraction, changing my internal monologue, practicing mindfulness, these are all important parts of my mental health regimen. Mindfulness for me looks like focusing on my breath and reducing how anxious or activated my experience of life is. A research-based perspective on childhood trauma and why one might be less able to drop from an anxious state into a restful state is discussed in the book Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biography Becomes Your Biology. Mindfulness-based stress reduction is a scientifically supported practice and I've included a site with free resources from a retired psychotherapist who enjoys publishing his work and his courses online for free. As a person trained in hard science, I do my best to code switch or change the words I choose when speaking to those who subscribe to alternatives. Placebo effects are often very strong and occur anytime a person believes they're being treated, including when they're taking empirically supported medications. That means outcomes using painkillers like aspirin, empirically supported, are twofold. You get the placebo effect, and you also get the evidenced medicinal effect. The placebo effect is so strong, it noticeably overshadows medicinal effects such that brand name painkillers, chemically identical to generics, are perceived by users as doing more, and as a result, they actually do do more when users are surveyed. My special guest today is Kathy Vertuli, a San Jose-based, think San Francisco Bay Area, Doctor of Material Sciences and Engineering with 19 patents to her name. She currently focuses on teaching connection and engaged play at the She's also working on EFT resources on a sliding scale at thrivingnow.com. There are some free resources there, and I've also included a great article on how trauma affects the brain. Wikipedia's article on emotional freedom techniques or EFT also called tapping, clearly communicates that while some swear by it, it is, quote, not empirically supported, end quote. Tapping is primarily built on traditional Chinese medicinal philosophy. Think qi, meridians, energy. And in my opinion, relies on distraction to change internal monologue, as well as touch to promote grounding in the body. That's just a skeptic's opinion. I think it's worth listening to people who subscribe to Wu even if you dismiss most of it. While their language may be unscientific, sometimes they're using a different set of words to describe an otherwise scientific process. When New Age individuals talk about vibrations or energy or a person's frequency, often I just interpret that as them meaning mood, engagement, or enthusiasm. While I certainly don't subscribe to any mystical reasoning behind laws of attraction, I think it's fair to say that high-affect individuals, that's people that are happier, exuding more social activity or energy, those individuals tend to perceive pursue and complete more of their desired opportunity than those with lower affect. Think a person who looks more depressed or is behaving in a more socially conservative or restrained fashion. That means high energy people, quote unquote, are more likely aware of, spend energy pursuing, and complete tasks related to goals and desires. Whether you're science minded or new age, let's all get a little better at code switching between the two. Keep an open mind and listen to intimate interactions. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. My guest today is Kathy Vartuli from the TheIntimacyDojo.com. She's a YouTube vlogger who's currently working on a site, thrivingnow.com, and you mentioned there were tons of free resources at both of those websites, including thrivingnow.com slash trauma, is that right? Yes. Welcome, Kathy. I'm really excited to talk about how trauma affects the brain and various other things in and around um, anxiety. We were talking about emotional management, in season two of Intimate Interactions and I'm super interested to hear what you have to say about trauma care and anxiety and as much as they may not be fun emotions, the emotions that are sort of in and around that
1: Oh, thank you, Victor. I love talking about this because I think a lot of people think it's just people with the big T traumas, rape and war and car accidents that have anxiety and have issues around trauma. And honestly, all of us have small T traumas. We couldn't find mom in the grocery store when we were three. We, Mom or dad yelled at us at a time when we were really trying to decide something important about how we interacted with the world. Mm-hmm. And we all carry these around. And then when we go out in the world and are trying to interact with other humans in a romantic or sexual interaction, unfortunately we're carrying all this old trauma with us. And the definition of trauma is it's something that occurred to us as more than, it overwhelmed our resources. So some bad thing that happened that appeared life-threatening to us in that context and it overwhelmed our resources. Mm -hmm. So to a three-year-old losing mom in the grocery store That could mean life or death to a small child. There's a trauma there. Our primitive brain, our survival brain is going like hyenas are now going to eat us. So, we, we carry that and we're like afraid we might then carry an anxiety a fear of facing this ever experiencing it again and we might find our find ourselves getting nervous when our partner gets out of sight which could be really taxing on both both partners like one partner is like constantly hypervigilant, the other one is just like why won't you let me step outside by myself right um, and anxiety I love I'm a geek so I love the definitions yes um, so anxiety is a feeling of worry nervousness or unease typically around some kind of event that's coming up or anything that's uncertain mm-hmm. um, and we have traumas what happens is in in nature animals that get traumatized naturally shake them off over time if you've seen rabbits right like freeze in the bush they have fight flight or freeze Um, And they will freeze in the bush And then afterwards they'll run Or they'll make noises They kind of burn off the chemical response They release that freeze mechanism And they go on and have Just a good life Like they're, they're fine They actually can get more resilient If they have that you know, fight, flight, or freeze, and then it's released. They they learn how to deal with the world.
0: I've also the heard apologies- I've also heard Fawn as well. Also, apologies yes. to our listeners because there is a bit of a delay because we are conferencing in from San Francisco and Vancouver. Yes. Um, there's also, have you, have you heard about CPTSD and Fawn? And do you want to talk a little on yes. that?
1: Peter, um, I'm forgetting his last name right now. He lives up in San Francisco and he talks awesome. about Fawn. And I absolutely think that's an aspect of it um, where we try to appease people around, please, I'll be nice to you. So don't go away. Please, you know, like don't disappear if I'm doing all these things for you. right? So it's absolutely part of it. Um what we teach and what what is commonly believed, we've worked with a lot of neurologists and traumatologists to, to understand this better, is when there's a freeze mechanism, most humans are, we're not taught to release it. It's like uh, normally a child would freeze because they're scared and then they would cry or run or shake. We're taught, hey, be a big boy, big girls don't cry, right. I'll give you something to cry about. Right. So we shut down that freeze mecha- The the release of the freeze mechanism. And then it's like stored as an energetic bubble in our system. And the analogy I use with my clients is that it's like all of a sudden there's a radio or a TV playing the memory of that bad thing that happened. And as we get more and more of them, we get all these different TVs playing different stations playing this old bad thing that happened because we haven't released it in our our survival brainer our um, subconscious hasn't realized its past.
0: Right, so when you say energetic bubble, you're talking about memories, experiences, emotional states even, like the um, the mood or emotional state we were in during a trauma. It gets saved yes. almost and attached to like a muscular trigger or it gets essentially invested in like a portion of our body and then it's yeah. easy to trigger those and, and and have this expression that your whole body has this reaction where you return to that emotional state and your reaction to a situation just seems very overblown or seems removed because it is removed from that situation.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that also happens is our survival brains, we have the the base of our skull, like the oldest part of our brain, it evolved and it's supposed to normally talk to our cognitive brain so we have this the base of our head is storing everything that happened and then normally our cognitive brain goes in and kind of filters it and tells it what to pay attention to so if you're a small child you're learning how to ride a bike you're nervous cuz you're not sure this is a good idea and you get distracted and you don't see a, a crack in the, the sidewalk you fall and you hurt yourself badly right and then you never you're never allowed to release it what is going on, maybe in the background you're hearing a lawnmower go off. Right. You know, someone's mowing their yard. You're smelling fresh-grown grass, grown grass. Maybe you hear an ice cream truck in the distance and a dog is barking. Um, your your survival brain stores all of those things as potential dangers. Right. So, And normally, if we release the freeze response, our cognitive brain would go in and go, none of those, just erase those from the worry list. Right. And just notice that there was a big crack in the sidewalk. Watch out for cracks. Don't worry about dogs, the smell of fresh run grass, or the lawnmower, or the truck in the background. The problem is when those TVs are playing now, we hear a lawnmower in in the distance, and we suddenly pick a fight with our spouse or our partner. Right. Because we're feeling this fear, this the, the TV starts playing louder, because we we haven't released it, we haven't learned to turn off that channel or just
0: pull out what's useful from totally. it. Totally, um, doctor, I think it's da- Dr. Daniel Siegel. I maybe I may be getting the name wrong, but I'm yeah. I'm seeing you yeah. nodding. Um, yeah, yeah. The the whole um the whole brainchild is one of my favorite um of his work with Dr. Oh, I'm forgetting now Tina something. There and yeah, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of um, neurologists that are talking about this right now. And, and yeah, it's, it's amazing to hear advice on how to sort of parse through that and the way that we use narratives, especially as children, to mm-hmm. assign meaning and values and how having a parent as a guide to walk you through those lowercase t traumas is really important yeah. so that you don't accidentally focus on the wrong stimulus and internalize something insignificant as quite
1: significant. Yes. Yeah. And we're always, as children, trying to figure out how we can, how can we get to understand the world? What's safe, what's not safe? Mm-hmm. And so we're internalizing, we also pick up things from our parents. So, we learn through mirror neurons pick up things. So if you were my father and you were very scared of cars backfiring, for example. Sure. And you responded really badly, my brain would absorb some of that and go, Oh, that's very dangerous. That's right. why like, I should be scared. You would too. pick
0: up on all the body language from your parent being in a state of activity, like being activated by something or being stressed, and you would go, Oh, there's danger, I can see the danger in my parent.
1: Yeah, and the problem is when we go as adults to have relationships, even you know friendships, work relationships, romantic relationships, we have all these TVs playing in the background, mm-hmm. all these fears, and it's very hard to be present with someone. And one of the core abilities to connect with someone for true intimacy means I have to be present with you now. And instead, I have all these TVs blaring, and I'm projecting all my fears and beliefs on you. And it's not, I'm not really actually having an interaction with you. I'm having an interaction with my stories about you. Right. And most humans, the other person is also having a relationship with the stories and the masks that they put on the other person. Mm-hmm. And they wonder why relationships are so shallow and not very exciting. Like, right. really boring, actually. And stressful. And, like... Maybe it's not worth it. Where's my true love, my prince charming or princess charming that's going to break through? Right. Not to be gendered, but just to refer back to, to you know, sure. the fairy tales that we're brought up with. Right. That this person would suddenly overwhelm and help us break free of this old stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of the fact that we often have to just realize how much this is—the old stories are pulling us apart and pulling at us—and that we can actually release them right and become more resilient for the whole process
0: yeah and i think that's one key thing that you're that you're hitting on over and over again is that post traumatic growth that trauma resilience that we can we can leverage these opportunities for growth and actually become stronger
1: people for them mm-hmm. yeah i i i grew up i had a sexual abuse history i learned and my parents were pretty dysfunctional they loved us very much they wanted to do their best they passed on a lot of things that were useful and a lot of things that were not useful and I was one of those kids in high school that wouldn't meet anyone the eye. Yeah, I couldn't meet people's eyes. I thought people were the most dangerous, horrible things, and I didn't want anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. And it was gradually as I went to college and got away and started dealing with people that were a little more functional. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I wanted to be closer to people, but it still scared me. The yeah. anxiety was so high. And even interacting with people for a half hour or an hour, I was worn out because... I was trying to like I had all the TVs blaring. I was trying to learn new skills. I had like fears about these people and um, people meet me now that they haven't seen me in years. Are like who are you? Like how did how is it possible that you're you know you're doing things? I've been on stage speaking in front of 700 people. i have like they're like you wouldn't even talk to two people or one person. Like how did you do this? Mm-hmm. I've really seen that by looking at it, it's painful sometimes to look at this stuff. Like, where did this come from? What am I actually, who is this person really in front of me versus who do I want to see or expect to see? Right. Um, but as I did that, it was really beautiful to see myself saying, Oh, I don't really know what to expect, but I'm pretty sure I can handle it. And that's, that's really what resiliency is. It's like, I, you know, I'm not really sure what's going to, what's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure I got this. I have the resources now to handle what's happening or take care of myself.
0: It's almost a sense of confidence in oneself or faith in one's ability to tackle whatever challenges life is going to throw at you.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't mean I'm not awkward. I don't sometimes step in it and I'm like, oh, I wish I had (laughs) said that. Like, we're human. I think we're going to always do that. And I, I don't want to ever model that. I used to think that if I ever really did this work well... I would suddenly be really suave and graceful and never misspeak speak. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that was a myth. That wasn't yeah. true.
0: Modeling fallibility but, is something I'm, I'm really passionate about. Not that I, I seek to be terrible at things, but the, <laughs> that when I do have those moments where I, where I struggle, I do try and promote that struggle is a normal part of the process for anyone who is trying.
1: Yeah I so appreciate that you do that cuz that vulnerability helps other people step forward mm-hmm. if we think we have to be perfect and I really did I was brought up with this idea that you have to be perfect to be the least acceptable right and so I was so fake with everybody I was always if if I still remember I went to an Al-Anon meeting because I was dating uh, my girlfriend at the time was an alcoholic and I was really not in a good space. So I went to an Al-Anon meeting and they make you read right. out of the, the big book like you have to go around and each of you ch- have it like you're gonna get the next paragraph. So I would be sitting there counting the paragraphs ahead and like practicing my paragraph over and over in my head, not paying attention to anything. Right. Or if we had to share, I was like rehearsing in my head how like based on the people here, I think they want to hear this and this is what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. Wow. I really trying to manipulate the, the room to get the response I thought I needed to be safe.
0: Right. And it comes back to that safety through controlling one's environment. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think... And that,
0: Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was, I was just going to say, and that um, ties into anxiety really well because mm-hmm. it ties back into why are we experiencing anxiety to begin with? Originally, it was an adaptive response. Mm-hmm. Usually... There's a point in your life where you develop developed the anxiety. It's not always childhood, but it seems yeah. so frequently for me it is. Yes. Um, where you can sort of trace it back and say, okay, how is this adaptive? How is this my brain genuinely trying to help me? And I think when you realize that like it isn't a betrayal of your mind as much as just a misplaced concern, like a genuine love for you. This is, I mean, you don't have to necessarily frame it as a love for you. I find that useful my more skeptical audience may um, may prefer that I frame it as, you know, an adaptive evolutionary response, but no matter how you choose to parse what's happening, it is in every way trying
1: to promote you continuing living and being healthy. Yeah, I worked, uh, we've done some, back, uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Scare is a neurologist, he was one of the early traumatologists, and we interviewed him and, and took some classes with him because he's just really brilliant. But he talks about... There's actually a part of us that kind of splits off and holds that energy, that pain, and yeah. it certainly can happen as an adult. But there's really part of us saying, "Hey, you can't handle this. The last time you did this, we almost died, or something really horrible." Because there is social fear too. Right. Our primitive survival brain—it evolved. Some people call it the monkey or the reptile brain. Depends on how sure. far, how much you're including in that, but. That part of us to have social standing was really critical. It evolved in a time when we had tribes, as far as we can tell. And the tribes, if we didn't have social standing, if we didn't seem valuable to the tribe, we might be left for hyenas next time. Or if we broke our leg, no one was going to feed us. So there is, you know, people like, oh, there was no physical danger. I shouldn't be worried. That social pressure to to be long and be part of is huge. And it's, it's just as important to our survival brain as, you know, is there enough food and water for us to eat? Is there, you know, are we going to be eaten by a bear, by a bear tomorrow? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so, social, social anxiety is definitely becoming a bigger and bigger hot-button issue. Yeah. There's definitely more and more people that are being either self-identifying as having it or being diagnosed as having it. A lot of the awareness around the social piece is coming through the lens of, look at this new technology, social media is terrible. It's interesting, you hear the same argument every generation where there's a new technology. All these people on the subway are reading newspapers, like, we're not talking to each other anymore, or, you know, everyone's... they're, They're
1: on their phone, they're not talking to each other anymore.
0: And yeah, after that, it was everyone's, you know, watching TV, no one's having family connection anymore, and then no one was even in the same room. It was like, now everyone's on their phone or their device. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think it's really easy to blame things on that. And I do think the social awareness that's coming up is useful. Because mm-hmm. when I was when I was growing up, I was just told to get over my shyness. And then I should just act like an extrovert. Right. Like, I should pretend. I should force myself to pretend. And that felt so inauthentic to me. And I didn't know how to connect. Like, it felt awful and it was exhausting and... I knew something wasn't right about it But there were no other solutions at that time mm-hmm. And now there's a lot of somatic Experiencing and therapy And other ways where we can release these old traumas And learn skills That we can be authentic Like mm-hmm. I can say, hey, I, I'm actually Maybe now more a introvert Because I released the traumas that were keeping me in the shy Like it was so stressful to be around humans And there's a difference between shy and introverted Introverted yeah. I recharge being alone extrovert I recharge around people shy often is an association of shame I feel bad about myself there's something I'm trying to hide
0: interesting so it's almost like a perception of danger or anxiety could be lumped in with shyness or are you saying that's more associated with introversion I'm just curious or is it just a third thing altogether
1: um I think I think I think there's also there's like a venn diagram where they overlap so if I'm shy because I feel shame, I feel ashamed. I feel like if people notice for me when I was a kid, I had to hide the abuse. I was like, okay, I'm going to hide this abuse. If anyone knows, they'll think I'm a harmful person. Mm-hmm. So I had anxiety and shyness kind of overlapping on the same area there were that you know the shame was producing anxiety and the anxiety of not how, knowing how to interact with people was they were kind of feeding each other in some sense and i think certainly if an introvert has been taught that they should recharge around people or they shouldn't be as anxious there could be shame and anxiety and all absolutely makes sense. so yeah. i love i love that we're talking more about it and people can find they can say oh yes i'm an introvert and i'm proud of it so what you know versus oh it's a bad thing to be an introvert Mm-hmm. There, was, there was an amazing
0: book on it. I cannot remember the title to save my it's life right now. Quiet. Oh, it's called which? Quiet. Quite possibly. Um, and no. do you know who that's by, or is it just literally five I, letters?
1: Just quiet is the name of the book. I think it's just quiet. I read it, but it's been a few... It's been... Uh, the power. Of, it's called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Okay. By Susan Cain, C-A-I-N. It's a very Susan, Susan Kane? yeah Susan Kane. awesome I will put links for people yeah it's a, it's a very good book um, I, I learned, I, it was very geeky for me so um, it's just like maybe we are allowed to want to recharge on our own maybe we're allowed to ask for that space and, and mm-hmm. be okay our, this world is geared very much for extroverts there's a lot of privilege
0: yeah. in being an extrovert definitely I mean, there's definitely, like, social advantage in being attractive um, physically. There's also advantage in being attractive socially. If you can be an extrovert and and demonstrate socially what people believe is the norm, you're yes. definitely going to, yeah, you're absolutely going to have access to more resources socially than a person who can't.
1: Yeah, the person who's outgoing and entertaining and engaging and introducing people back and forth is going to have more of a network, probably. Probably, They'll Yeah. Have- yeah. and there are introverts that have learned to network I, inter, I, I tend to do let's let's get together one on one and do some videos and then I'm going to go sit by myself for a while yeah. um, so there are ways to to get around that but I think there's still a lot of people feel ashamed if they're not extroverted mm-hmm. and that certainly can get in the way of all kinds of relationships so if you're going out and you're feeling like you have to act like someone you're not or behave in a way that's not authentic to you one, it feels like it feels bad in our body. People don't like to lie. Like we, lies do not feel good in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Two, other people are picking up micro expressions on our faces and our body language that say something is off. Definitely. And they, yeah, and they don't necessarily know it's that we're trying to be an extrovert when we're really an introvert. Humans are naturally going, is this person trying to pull something over on me? Are they right. trying to get away with something? Sure, are they lying? We're just, yeah, we're just picking up that something's a little off, so it's very hard to connect because they're they're putting their, their walls up. They're like, there's something. I don't feel really close to them. I don't feel mm-hmm. open to this person. There's not the trust right. that I might have. Um, yeah,
0: absolutely. That's going to be a huge roadblock to developing a sense of intimacy because all of our warning bells for if someone's being vulnerable around us, are they being authentic? Am I in danger? Like those natural human, I'm keying to body language I'm not consciously recognizing is going to put a huge
1: distance for sure. Yeah. So one of the things I I work with my clients on is admitting where they're at. So one of my icebreakers for shy and awkward people is to say, like say you're at a party and you want to talk to somebody and you're like feeling really shy and awkward. One of my, I tell them, just say, hey, you know, what's true for them? Wow, I never know what to say at these parties. I never know how to talk to people. Just owning that truth, and you know, nine, you know, half the people are like, oh, me too. Thank God you said that. Like, and all of a sudden the conversation gets real. It's like, oh yeah, me too. And some people be like, oh, that's not really my thing, but you're on. I can feel the authenticity of you, and you're being vulnerable and open. Right. Um, and the few people that are gonna walk away, I figure they're probably not worth, you know, if they're just gonna be assholes about it. It's like. Thank you. Go on. I filtered you out.
0: Well, and also, um, if you're if you're pairing up with an extrovert who is looking for a high-energy conversation, it might be to everyone's best interest that they just self-select and remove yeah. themselves from the conversation. This,
1: I'm not it. Go someplace else. But it does take... It, it takes a little practice because a lot of times we're, when we haven't socially interacted with people a lot, we don't have as many skills, and we don't know how to balance that. So... Sometimes I would be like, uh, when I was first starting, and I use the analogy of a two-pound weight. So like, if you have never been to the gym, you don't want to go to the to the gym and start lifting the hundred-pound weight. Do not walk up to the crush of the century and start practicing this stuff. Go and start doing gentle light lifts. I encourage my clients to chat with the grocery clerk, talk to the someone when you're pushing your cart down the grocery aisle. Like, oh, are those avocados? Like, start practicing with the two-pound weights build up so that you know you go for two pound weights for a couple weeks and all of a sudden it's light, it's easier but the first times you're lifting it, it may feel very hard to do. Mm -hmm. And the same can be said for people going the other way, if they're about to start work
0: in a very isolated place, you can always just start practicing being alone in places you're normally alone and just acknowledging, oh I'm in the bathroom, I'm alone and just becoming comfortable with being alone in spaces you're already comfortable with being alone in and then you can sort of tie that over to other other areas where you wouldn't normally be alone like maybe you're eating food alone and you're like this is okay this is a little harder for me and then you again you just build that muscle up and the same can probably be said for introverts being extroverted
1: absolutely and it's not even we're we're not trying to make them um an extrovert we're not trying to make them recharge um without people without people around We're just trying to get the social skills built up that they may never have learned. An extrovert maybe naturally learns more of these skills just by practicing as a small child. Yes. Um, So, you know, just if you you feel comfortable talking to people, you talk to people more. Mm -hmm. An introvert, Mm -hmm. because they've learned that being around people is tiring may be more reticent they may not have as much practice Mm -hmm. so i encourage people it's not to recharge but it's learned learning how to build intimacy you want to just practice talking to people and being authentic about who you are it's not about being a victim it's not about trying to control anything it's just like this is me i'm i'm offering an opening to to connect a little bit and sometimes people want to take it and some people don't but I like to i um I teach a class called flirting and Sex for the Shy, and one mm-hmm. of my first things is just start offering the flirting is actually just a playful way to interact with people. It doesn't mean I'm flirting with you, therefore we have to get married and have kids and have sex today. It means I'm appreciating something about you and I'd like to leave your day a little lighter than it was. yeah, so I just like, wow, that you know that color of that shirt really brings out your eyes and that's you know just like not anything like it doesn't have to be sexual or anything it's just like hey just a gentle appreciation and going on and just noticing that you by connecting we can actually make other people's days better totally a lot of introverts have a fear that they can't they can't uh, they're they're I know I had a deep shame I felt like me being a part of the community or part of that conversation would actually detract from it oh no so, of course, I didn't want to. I'd be very quiet unless someone asked me a question, and then I'd blurt something out because I was so nervous.
0: Yeah, that sucks. Yeah.
1: How did you so overcome think, that? Um, it, a lot of it was just practice, and I was in a position at work where I had to talk to people. And mm. I realized that I could actually, people seemed to enjoy talking to me. And they would, because I had a role, I, mm-hmm. I was a more able to fulfill that. And I, just like I encourage some of my clients, like volunteer at the meetup. You know, find a task that you need to do because that will give you some anchoring, maybe. But I just started doing more of it, and I was like, Oh, they're inviting me to barbecue. I have to go. Oh, this is awful. Oh, wait, maybe it's not so awful. Mm -hmm. Um, in the meantime, I was also doing a lot of a lot of healing work on my old traumas. So I'd done therapy for years, so I really understood them. But it wasn't until I did I used emotional freedom techniques that helped me release a lot of it somatically. For me, Um, Mm -hmm. and what they believe is happening, they've done studies in hospitals and FTIR machines. Mm -hmm. They believe that the tapping we do on acupressure points allows the cognitive brain to go back into the frozen memories in the amygdala and hippocampus and actually reevaluate them. So we talked earlier about the little kid that fell on his bike, Mm -hmm. and he's always been afraid. Maybe he's always been afraid of the sound of the lawnmower and, and grass and the truck and the dog barking. They all make him anxious. Sure. They believe that when we do the tapping on that memory, what happens is the cognitive brain goes back and goes, oh, wait, you never got the update, that we can erase these. And all of a sudden, people feel calmer. There's less anxiety and less drain on their energy. And they start feeling able to be more present with people.
0: I've also noticed, um, just while we're talking about somatic strategies for tackling traumatic memories, um, I've also noticed that... In counseling recently, I've been touching base with a counselor who specializes in somatic techniques. Um, mm. She doesn't do any tapping, but she does um, just various things, like focusing on parts of your body. It really it revolves around the research um, in mindfulness, because there has been a lot of really excellent research in mindfulness in the last even like five years. Um, yeah. But mindfulness specifically, whether that's practicing through concentration, whether that's practicing through meditation, it doesn't really matter which family of
1: mindfulness breaths in the body yeah
0: yeah it can oh. like mindfulness based stress reduction can literally just be taking 30 seconds to not not stress yourself with anything to just kind of like sit back against a wall and just focus on your breath and do your best to kind of let every it's it's hard to explain because you don't want people to try and force things out of yeah. their head because that can that can cause more tension but just but just removing oneself from one's th- stream of thoughts and doing just an extremely intense focus on your own breath to the ex- almost to the exclusion of focusing on any thoughts you're having but not so intensely you don't have thoughts
1: yes you, um, there is an, if, if anyone wants a free audio and there's tapping along with it if they want or they can just do it as an audio either or yeah thrivingnowcom forward slash breathing my business okay. recorded as a free um, I love it I whenever I start feeling stressed I just do that because literally we're giving biofeedback to our body when we do this so normally when we're anxious we start taking short shallow breaths we're breathing in the top yeah. part of, top part of our lungs if a bear was about to chase you, it's very natural. You're not going to take a deep breath. You're going to take short, shallow breaths, hyperoxygenate yourself so you can run really fast. So our, brain, our primitive brain is very responsive to our body. There's not a clear delineation between this is our primitive brain, this is our body. They're very linked. When we take nice, slow breaths, one, we're, if we make noise, especially if we exhale, we're triggering the vagus nerve which tells our primitive brain things are safe. And that slow deep breath also gives feedback to our primitive brain to say, oh, there's not actual danger right now. We can mm. we can get the parasympathetic going and, and let the body relax. So it's it's a powerful thing we can do. Absolutely,
0: and I think while we're talking about parasympathetic nervous system, there are so many cycles of regulation in your body um, from genetically to cellularly to organ, tissue, et cetera. Like there are just so many overlapping regulation mechanisms in the body and things definitely evolve to cue to each other so that they work but sometimes things do cue to responses they don't necessarily cue to like the very very initial stimulus so what you were saying about shallow breathing is absolutely correct you can both have shallow breathing because of chemical messengers in your body, you're getting a lot of stress hormones out in your body um, and your body's reacting with shallow breathing. And that shallow breathing can in turn set other things off and you just end up with whole whole downstream effects that are based on effects of a thing, not on the thing itself. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that regulation can get out of control a little bit and being able to ground yourself, even just with mindfulness, it really helps bring us back to a rest state. And that's something that people that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder like cptsd complex post-traumatic stress disorder don't tend to be able to ever really get back to that resting state and if mm-hmm. they can't come back to that resting state you just end up with with so much continuous stress it's it's incredibly bad for us
1: yeah i just when they call it kindling where if i have an anxiety uh, if i have an anxiety attack um because so let's go back to the little boy that was um that fell off his bike he maybe 10 years 20 years later he's um, suddenly smells fresh from grass and hears a lawnmower going and he starts having an anxiety attack right. and he just ate green beans for example and his wife just um, just started the the dishwasher Those things can actually be looped in. The survival brain can actually decide that those are triggers that are also dangerous. So you've heard of people that get increasingly anxious where everything starts triggering them more and more. Mm -hmm. So that, it's called kindling, where he suddenly starts pulling in more things. His his brain is now suddenly afraid of green beans and and the dishwasher. And he starts feeling anxious every time he experiences those. Um, Mm -hmm. The nice thing is we can do the opposite, too, where we start releasing those. And um, we have uh, another, it's a free resource, thrivingnow.com forward slash grounding, where we have a list of grounding exercises that can help people get out of that anxiety, that panic state, into their bodies and more present. And one of the things that a lot of people come to me for, too, is because I work with shy and awkward people, I've had people reach out and say, my partner is having all these issues. Right. What can I do? And there's so much you can do because we, our brains naturally look to each other. So if anyone's seen either a herd of deer or horses or some squirrels outside, they're all playing, eating, doing their thing. One gets scared and run, and all of them run. We tend to sink ourselves. And if the more grounded and present we can be, sure. our partner is going to, you know, initially we may feel like we're getting anxious because they're getting anxious. The more we can learn grounding exercises and be more present and take the slow, deep breaths, they're going to mimic off of us. If we can be the more strong, grounded person and we can actually help them be more present with us, we can help them step out of their issues faster. If we Mm -hmm. care to, that's definitely a consent thing, but it's very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I think
0: partner support and not stigmatizing our own partners for just either natural parts themselves or things that they're currently struggling with or coping with, just being just being open and receptive to communicating about, you know, am I, am I, am I clobbering you with too much support and affection and attention? Like, is, is what I'm doing to me support, but maybe to you, it's stressful. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I love, Reed Mahako asks, often asks this question as part of his relationship programs, and I love it. He's like, what do you need me to be right now for you? Mm-hmm like so asking someone and giving them a simple choice do you want me just to listen do you want advice do you want me to you know agree with you like what is it that will help you most right now because sometimes we just need to vent and we need someone to say yeah that was terrible and sometimes we need someone to say i'm just listening quietly or hey i think this might be a solution so we get to if we we're in a space where we can ask for that that's very powerful absolutely and it certainly helps the other person. if you. And if you don't want advice, it's really good to say, hey, I need to vent for five minutes. Can you I need just someone listen? to listen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or can you agree that, just agree with me. I know that you may not, but just like, yeah, that's terrible. I just need to feel empathy for a few Honestly, minutes. Honestly,
0: like the feeling, the needs for, if, if we go to like NVC and Marshall Rosenberg's compassionate communication or nonviolent communication, <laughs> having needs for validation and support, it is not unreasonable to ask a friend, I need to vent for five minutes and I need you to be angry about the same shit I'm angry about and I need you to agree with me no matter how off in left field and, and insignificant or totally wrong, you might think the things I'm complaining about are. I will are, hold it
1: to you, but I just need for this few minutes just to feel totally heard absolutely. and Absolutely.
0: And it's not going to go on for hours. I need, let's let's negotiate, let's say 12 minutes. You know, <laughs> you like pick the amount of time you need and you may not find that person's your partner and it may hurt that your partner isn't going to be your everything if you're a monogamous Especially if person. if it's about your
1: partner, don't use your partner. <laughs> people yes. want to do that all the time I'm like that's not the way to do it find that somebody else bad idea yes yes so yeah finding a good therapist or a friend or someone you can, you can yeah get. and it can you don't have to be in person on skype or a phone or whatever can to mm-hmm. work too but just getting the support you need um and knowing what to ask for but i um with uh, one lot of my clients and their partners, I ask them to print out the grounding exercises at thrivingnow.com forward slash grounding are available for free. You can print them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I encourage people to print them out because if you're in the middle of an anxiety attack or you're in a trauma, you're, be, you're being triggered, you're not going to remember. If it's on the, the bathroom door and the, the kitchen on the, on the front of the refrigerator, you're much more likely to go, oh, wait, it's right there. Yeah. Oh, I could do this thing right now. I could take a drink of water. If a bear is chasing you, you're not stopping for a nice cool glass of water or a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. So just taking a slow, deep breath and taking a drink of water, all of a sudden your system starts regulating a little better.
0: Yeah, it definitely stimulates that parasympathetic system and, mm-hmm. and sort of down-regulating all of those
1: adrenaline stress responses. Yep. And, and a little bit of food can also do that too. A lot of people that are anxious, they either don't eat very much or they eat frequently because, it, again, if a bear is chasing you, you're not eating a sandwich. So, mm-hmm. giving them offering somebody like a, some crackers or something that feels good to them, and again, warm or cool tends to see, trick, help the primitive brain regulate better because you had you would have to create a fire, you'd have to have safety to create those things. Absolutely. Um, and I also encourage them just to you can encourage your partner or yourself look around the room because when we're say we're breathing shallowly because we're we're nervous. And your brain is getting triggered that there's something dangerous there. If you actually look around the room, physically as silly as it sounds, look around the room and see if there's any lions or tigers or angry mothers or fathers. Oh, I don't see any. Oh, wow. I'm then sending an information packet to my brain that maybe it's not as scary as I thought that will help step out of that breathing pattern and and that biofeedback loop.
0: Absolutely. Um, I've even had my counselor recommend if I'm in a conversation with someone and it's a really heated or intense conversation taking just two seconds to glance to break eye contact and glance at anything on the wall pick a thing glance at it and just pull myself a couple steps out of the conversation and it's like the intensity of the social connection is instantly broken and then you get to return to the conversation as you bring your eyes back to their eyes and it just gives you that little bit of a breather. Do you mind if I um, divert for a second and talk about the oh, window I of tolerance? Great. Okay, cool. So on this topic, there's um, something called the window of tolerance. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Oh, you are wonderful.. You go um, ahead. So the notion is that you have this um, so in psychology, we have a term called arousal, and that that has to do with how activated your brain is, how engaged you are in what you're doing. And if you end up becoming too aroused, I know this is this is definitely, there's an ED joke in here somewhere, but if you, you don't, you don't need to call a doctor if you're, but um, yeah, if you end up being too activated by the situation that you're in, you enter a state of hyper arousal, which is anxiety, essentially. Um, it's, again, this is a simplistic way of describing it, but essentially you have this window of tolerance, which is what you're accustomed to, and if you go above that, you end up in hyper arousal and anxiety, and if you dip below that, you end up in hypo arousal or depression or things that look like those states yeah so as we're as we're talking about anxiety and and managing our emotions and regulating what we're really talking about at least if we're talking specifically in the context of anxiety is how do i keep myself in that window of of regulation how do i keep myself in that target area
1: yeah and it's it kept me challenging especially if you you're trying to push yourself out of your comfort zone to learn new social skills to kind of work through some of this stuff lifting that that two pound weight i like the analogy of the of, uh this is someone from a childhood early childhood development and i'm forgetting her name right now but i'll have to look it up she ta- says imagine you have a, a one you're on a road you're on your lane of the road the center is a median. There's like gravel and brush and maybe a guardrail there on the outside there's the ridges so you don't want to go too far out that way then there's maybe a ditch most of us are driving in the ditch or driving you know, through the saplings. We're trying to force ourselves either to be so reticent we're never stepping outside our comfort zone or we're trying to push ourselves so hard we're, we're outside of our window of tolerance or just at the edge of it or constantly pushing ourselves. The really healthy spot is to be in the middle of the road, somewhere in totally. the middle driving. So as we're trying to step out of say social anxiety or fears of being close to people we don't, we can gradually drive over there. We don't have to like twist the wheel so we're all of a sudden in the ditch trying to like this is so terrifying this is horrible i can't do it people give right. up then they go in the depression and they go all the way back and it's it is fair to say too that
0: different people have different sized windows so for some people it may be hard to nail the middle of the road because you have a ditch very near to the median in the center Some
1: people have a five-lane highway and some people have like a dirt road in the back roads but
0: yeah Absolutely. And it really comes back to practicing and learning the strategies to really gradually widen that road to give you more of a, of an area you can be, you can exist in comfortably.
1: Yeah. And I think giving yourself permission to make mistakes is huge. Definitely. Um, I think for a lot of us, if we've been brought up with a perfection model or we're so scared, it may take so much courage just to talk with the one person that, like at the grocery store, like, uh, have a nice day and they don't respond they grunt or don't respond well it may feel like a total failure mm-hmm. like it's just mm-hmm. so much energy to go there versus okay that that person might have been a bad mood it might not have been about me in the way i said have a nice day it might have been just they're they were in a grumpy mood and they they're under their shift and they're tired we tend to think it's all about us mm-hmm. um, and, and children small children that's really common like, children think everything's, that's how their brains are wired. They can't think any other way. The problem is if we have a lot of those TV blarings from those early times, it's easier to get back into that state, that emotional state where I think everything's about me. The more we clear out, the more TVs we turn off or start clearing out, the easier it is to realize, oh, that person is really grumpy today, but you know what? I don't know that it was me. I can ask. Mm-hmm. And if it was me, then I can try to correct it. But if it wasn't me, then I can just say, oh, I had no way of knowing. Okay, I'm going to go on with my life. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of people are just, they, they think it's all about them. I think it's their, if anyone, and I still sometimes if I'm, if I'm low resourced, I'll still think it was about me. Like, oh, I did that badly. I should have never done that. Like if you're not well resourced and you're struggling a little
0: bit. It's yeah. easy to focus on, you know, and, and this is an interesting piece because it ties into shame a lot, and even though we're not podcasting directly about shame today, I'm still very happy all, to touch on
1: it' they're all really close to each other. they're
0: so so related. I find shame is something that you that comes from the outside world initially, but it's something you internalize and perpetuate against yourself over time as you have been trained to do yes so it's it's fascinating how people can think about shame like for example a perfectionist might see the one person in the room that has all the imperfections and go how is that person not stressed or upset and, and that yeah. person may not really care what other people think about them and a perfectionist might look at that person and just be like i don't frankly like that individual <laughs>
1: yes. or they may feel like they have, they're entitled they're feel entitled i've, I've sure. had that worked with a client that was like that person is not dressed appropriately. How are they entitled? They like they're, they're just they feel they're entitled to be here even though they haven't put all the effort I put in. Right. And I'm like, but not everybody cares about being dressed to the nines. That person, you know, it wasn't a fancy restaurant or anything. They were in jeans that were kind of ripped. It's like maybe right. that's comfortable for them. So we may project our beliefs onto other people and then feel like they're bad people for not following what we work so hard to follow.
0: Absolutely. There's definitely yes and i, I want to build on that in talking about um fear of being narcissistic if we have
1: <laughs> we all have that fear i think i really do think that
0: and and there's definitely a healthy zone again it's one of those continuum things i read this book called rethinking narcissism that talks about how it's not as simple as this person's diagnosed as a narcissist and mm-hmm. and everyone else is not a narcissist it's a question of what traits we have that are sort of like narcissist leaning And the interesting thing was it came back to a middle-of-the-road strategy again. If you drift too far off into this realm of, oh my God, I am mortified, people will think I'm a narcissist because I had a role model or a parent that was a narcissist, you can end up going into what this author calls being an echoist, which is where you're so self-effacing, you just can't take up space. You're so afraid to be seen and to take up space. You end up in this really toxic, really unhappy
1: place yeah no, that's really hard it's really hard on humans to try to push away so much um and that's actually the early childhood development class was actually to the the her book um uh, and I need to find it cuz it was so good but um, she talks about how we often, if we see our parent behaving a certain way, say our parent was all the way in the median, sometimes we'll drive all the way in the ditch yeah. to try to be as far away as we can, or we might mimic them and be in in the median rather than finding our own middle balance and and what is effective for us. And I think it is really important to realize that we can have we can have moments where we act, we have a, a trait or a tendency of narcissistic. Uh, Behavior that doesn't make us a narcissist. Yes. Um, there's all time. Oh, we all have times when we're not feeling appreciated, or we're not we're wanting to gather acclaim or mm-hmm. attention or to control the situation. That doesn't mean that we're a narcissist. And just so by just,
0: just by virtue of being afraid of being a narcissist, you're almost certainly not a narcissist.
1: Yeah, because I don't think that... I've never heard of one that was actually afraid of being that if they were truly... They they can't... My definition.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, there tends to be, like, a crushing sense of insecurity that's buried really, really, really deep. Again, I'm not an expert in these things, but yeah. that is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Having said that, if you're actively concerned about it on a regular basis because maybe you have some traits that are narcissist-leaning and you're like, I really fucking hate this about myself, <laughs> no problem. Like, you can work on those traits. You can actively... Do personal development. Be the person you want to be, yeah. and specifically, if you're concerned about it and doing personal development, you're—it's unlikely you're a narcissist. Yeah. Very, very unlikely.
1: Yeah. They—they they don't think they generally turn to get into therapy unless someone forces them to. Yeah. And I do think it. I. I I'm glad there's more awareness awareness of the traits now, but I do think that people, anytime they disagree with someone or someone who's – especially someone who's a little more arrogant or a little more extroverted, it tends to be used a lot when I think that I, – sometimes I think it's overused in that sense. It's yeah. Like, the word I disagree used, with that person, and they're arrogant, so I'm going to call them a narcissist.
0: Especially, Yes, it gets used colloquially in the same way that people say they are obsessive-compulsive colloquially, and it's yes. highly offensive to people who actually have obsessive-compulsive disorder, because it's yes. one thing to be, quote-unquote, anal, and to be very organized. It's another thing to have diagnosable obsessive-compulsion. And, and not be able to stop. Like, to be compulsive, that's literally what it means. Yes,
1: like, no, it's, 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 if it, it's attractive to you and you spend a lot of time getting organized, It may be frustrating to you sometimes, but someone who literally can't stop, that's a different level of it. It is yeah. and, th- and that's the level of pathology when you get
0: to a place where it starts to affect things like your work, it starts to affect things like your relationships like that's kind of the standard catch-all test is like yeah. oh I'm doing this thing and I'm worried that it's an addiction or I'm worried that it's, it's damaging or that it, it, it's something that I should I, I'm, I have an ethical responsibility to get help for to the people I love that are being affected by this. Yeah. And the first question is do they even notice like are they really being affected and if they are being affected is it like, is this a thing
1: that is negatively impacting your relationships? Is, is a good test. Yeah, no, it's absolutely a great test. One of the other things I like to, to ask my clients is is Are you using it to avoid something that you really should face? Yeah. Because I like that. that's, if it's not, if it's just a, a habit tick and something that comforts you, it might be just fine. Um, but if you're using it as a way to avoid things that are really affecting you in your life, that. Like, And that goes for people, food, alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, patterns that we have. Are you using it to avoid something that you really should look at? Yeah.
0: Can we talk a little about strategies for coping? I'm really interested in trying to give listeners and viewers um, just some strategies for how to manage anxiety, um, things that they
1: might benefit from. Yeah. I think it's, it's great to... The more you can think ahead, and some of it is looking at what your particular needs are, the individual person, Mm -hmm. because we all have different needs and different ways we soothe ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend, one, that they go through, download the grounding exercises. Those, I, I, when I first started doing this work, I I do distance work and I do an intake. And a person didn't disclose they had some pretty severe issues. And I was on Skype with them and they had a meltdown. And they were threatening to kill themselves. And I realized... One, I would have never worked with this person if I'd realized how deeply traumatized they were at a distance, but um, also I didn't. Real- I realized at that point I was brand new to, the- to doing coaching. I didn't have a good way to help them yet back in their body. So I did a ton of research, and I'm a PhD research scientist, so I'm pretty good at it, um, and I pulled together everything I could find that people recommended, and then I tested them out and with myself and other clients and with their permission, of course. And um, we figured out what worked and added to things as we found it. And all of them, what they do is they help us get out of, it's basically, we've all watched movies where we're so caught up in it, we're like, think it's really happening. I watched Jurassic Park last weekend for two days. I kept hearing noises outside. I was certain the raptor was coming to get me. (laughs) But part of my brain knew it wasn't. Like, it was kind of fun scared. But we've all been so involved in a movie or a story where we're like, don't even realize it's kind of, it's a story. Right. And we all get times when that TV might be playing. You just get the perfect storm, and those old memories are playing so well that it's really hard to step out of it. Mm-hmm. We feel like we're in a life-threatening situation. What we need to do at that point is get out of the, the survival brain and into our cognitive brain and our body. And all those exercises serve one of two purposes. They get you can reconnected with your your cognitive brain, or they get you back in your body in the present now. Mm-hmm. Um, so going through those with a friend, a partner, a therapist, figuring out which ones would likely work for you, maybe highlighting them. And from there, telling other people, finding other things too that you know work. Mm-hmm. I know that a cup of hot tea for me when I'm really nervous calms me down really fast. So testing yes. them out when you're not in the middle of warfare, for, ex- yes. for example, um, trying them out and seeing which actually calm you and anchor you. And then... It might be as, as simple as if you know tea works for you, put a couple bags of tea in your purse or your, your oh, briefcase and tell your friends that, hey, if I start getting anxious, if you're willing, here's the tea. This is this can help me. Um, so find, you're just testing them out and seeing what works and then notifying other people that you feel safe with.
0: There are also um, apps you can get that are helpful. I just looked yeah. one up on my phone. Um, yeah. One that I have installed is self-help space anxiety space management, and that's on the
1: Android app store. Do you yeah. have any favorite apps that you recommend? Um, I tend not to. I haven't used a lot of apps. because One of the reasons I do that is because I, I think for people that have a certain level of anxiety, that will they work great. But because I tend to work with people with high levels of trauma, right, 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 right. interfacing with a technology is not their grounding way. So I actually I encourage them to print out the grounding exercises physically, mm. um, but I think that the apps are great for a lot of people. Um, and especially if you're at a low level of stress, they can be amazingly helpful. Yeah. Um, and, and I think
0: for the majority of the people that... I mean, you know, what, I really shouldn't speak for my audience cuz I have I have very little research on them and I have no idea how that's going to grow and change. So, for all I know, it will be primarily people recovering from some form of trauma. I yeah. think and and I think trauma is extremely common in society, so that's not an unlikely outcome. Um, right. I am interested in exercises that help people before they get to the full-blown meltdown. I'm interested in like the little pushes to keep you in the center of the road. Yeah. So, I was, I'm so one that I learned from my therapist that I really like. I tend to <laughs> I tend to have a knee that shakes or trembles or vibrates as I'm getting stressed. So yeah. some people will talk about having a, a restless leg or, or um, having a sense of restlessness because they fidget. And yeah. I think fidgeting is great because it is one of those ways that your body's communicating with you. And if you can listen to what's going on around you and just sort of like nail down what is the situation that I fidget in. And when do mm-hmm. I fidget a little bit, and when do I fidget a lot? That gives you really vital information for managing your mental health and and helping you stay in the window of tolerance. Because usually you get to fidgeting when you're just starting to leave the window of tolerance. It's like fidgeting is a good way to burn off a lot of um, a lot of energy somatically, and, like, and all the hormonal things that we do as we're starting to get anxious and fearful. Absolutely, and and just try and try and again, like you were saying earlier move a little try and give your body that yeah to burn off all that stress so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like we have these little pushes and these little things that we just do naturally or like innately it's like we just some of us just know to fidget so we fidget and and that works for us but there are ways of slowing that movement down that I found incredibly useful so one exercise that my counselor shared with me was if I'm sitting just um, comfortably in a chair and I have my hands just above my knees on my thighs I can very, very slowly lift one of my feet so the toes are closer to my shin and then slowly roll it back down and then lift the other foot so the toes are close to my shin and then Uh put it back on the ground. And the more I can sort of slow down that rocking motion and it gives me an opportunity to really push my foot at the edge of a range of motion where it's safe for my body to do so. It's actually incredibly useful. I've I've found yeah. that I can take that motion, that fidgeting motion that I do naturally and and just slow it down and it does wonders. And you can do the same with your hands as well. And you can yeah. do your hands and your feet at the same time. And you can do well, this I under a table.
1: Yeah, and no one can see it work if you're in right. something. And I really love the feet especially, like we talk, do a lot of things with feeling your feet because mm. it's hard we we want to be back in our body and present. I mean, we tend to get scared. Our awareness, our presence goes into our head or above our head. It's safer. We've learned to dissociate it from our body often, especially if there's been pain or abuse. We've learned to pull away. It's hard to be grounded when you're in your head. Mm -hmm. So the more you can do with your feet, it's hard to be aware of your toes and your feet and not be part in your body to at least a certain extent. So I love that that you're doing your feet. There's nothing wrong with doing your hands, but I think your feet... For most people, it's going to get you more present with your entire body, especially if you've had reasons to not want to be connected with your body.
0: I definitely have a special relationship with my feet in that if I'm dreaming and I need to wake up from my dream, I can't wake up by manipulating any part of my body except my feet. That's the one thing I can do. If I'm kicking my feet, I can wake myself up from any lucid dream and it's the one and only reproducible strategy because I dealt with sleep paralysis before. And, you know, um, I have a sibling that deals with narcolepsy. So knowing that there are sleep disorders in my family and that I struggled with sleep paralysis as a child, um, that's one of the tricks I learned was like to get me out of sleep paralysis. If I just kept focusing on my feet, I could eventually break myself out of it. But it would take it would take minutes of working with my feet and I would slowly pull myself up and up and up and up until eventually I could move again. But it was
1: only my feet was the only thing that would do it. Wow, that's i'm I'm really glad you found that. I don't i I know there's physical reasons that people have those kinds of uh, um, responses, but I also know that there's a lot of people that have I have had them night terrors where I was literally frozen the fight flight freeze. I was frozen because I was having I was having flashbacks. Mm-hmm. and yeah, that being able to get too close to your feet, connect your feet, wiggle your feet or toes, it can help get back in your body and release that. And for some people, like I've literally been frozen like when I was first dealing with a lot of the traumas for four or five hours at a time. It was horrible, and I'd wake wow. up like, I would finally fall back asleep in that frozen state and'd wake up exhausted. When we're talking about these small things we can do when we're awake, we're noticing we're fidgeting, we're starting to move our feet. We notice our breath gets a little short. we take a deeper breath. we uh, notice we're getting fearful, we take a sip of water. Those may seem again, those are the cheap hand weights and I find people all the time want the magical cure. They want to dive deep and clear it all out. And unfortunately, that doesn't there are ways to do that, but they tend to be very painful. Yeah Just do these little things to take to train ourselves to break out of the freeze or break out of the anxiety attack. We're actually training our system on how to do this. So even though it's silly and we're like, oh, I'm not that anxious, but I'm going to take a sip of water, damn it. I hate that I have to do this. There's a lot of frustration often, but actually those are the steps, those frustrating little steps where we're teaching our system to go, I'm starting to feel anxious and I can step out. Right. And as we keep doing that, we start building up and then we get into the, I'm starting to feel a real freeze Mm -hmm. Oh, my system remembers how to step out of that. Mm -hmm. So that's over time, it can make a huge difference to how we interact with the world, how safe we feel, and also how much we can connect with other people. Because you know, from a frozen state, it's really hard to have deep intimacy. Absolutely. It's we're just we're in that frozen state dealing with whatever trauma or anxiety we have, not with this human being that we'd like to open our heart to, whether it be a friend, a coworker, or a romantic or sexual partner there's just it's almost impossible to have that that kind of a, an intimacy with someone else
0: absolutely so, well i mean yeah. i really appreciate all of the the wisdom that you've that you've shared all the life experience and yeah i would love to do this again sometime i think we're getting we're getting close on time okay um so yeah. did you have any closing comments or any
1: strategies you wanted to share yeah, I'd just like to share that for people that are, are feeling like this might be too hard or too, like, not worth it or that they're too broken, I know that feeling. I felt really too broken for a long time, and it was little steps forward and little just keeping the hope and trying to stay in the middle of the road. And if I got into the ditch going, oh, crap, I oversteered, or if I got into the median and I was in the bushes like, okay, well I know not to go quite that far next time. I was learning mm-hmm. process. So each failure is not really a failure. It's another experience that helps you guide going ahead. So if you can be really gentle with your yourself, get support and just practice the small things, you'd be surprised how quickly I was really surprised, like how quickly when I really found ways that work to calm my body, how quickly I could regulate and start and just be with people and say, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm feeling a little anxious. Can you hold on a minute while I take a deep breath? Or could we take a couple deep breaths together? Or just the fact I'm feeling anxious talking to you, because it's authentic and real, it helped me step out of that fear response so much quicker. Mm-hmm. So there's little skills and little practices we can do that will really transform things for you. And I do want you to have hope and know that this can get better.
0: Absolutely. That's, that's such a great message. Um, I had closing comments that I wanted to make, but I was so captured by what you were saying. (laughs) Um, Yeah, like, sometimes dysregulation can look like being in the median and then being in the ditch. Having an anxious reaction, leaving a social conversation, coming home and getting depressed, because we do steer too hard. And I think just acknowledging struggle, it is natural for human beings to struggle. It is normal. People struggle all the time. You don't have to do it alone. So just even having that, that internal monologue of just oh, I'm struggling right now. This is really hard for me. And that's okay. Just acknowledging the struggle can do so much for disarming the shame around struggle. Yeah. And that was basically my closing comment was just you don't have to do it alone. Get help. Join a community. Um, There are all kinds of discounted counseling um, services that are available. Dragonstone Counseling in Vancouver does sliding scale counseling, and if you can't afford, you know, 40 to $80, you can always sign up to be on their list with one of their interns, and their interns are between free and $40, and they are kink-positive, um, sex-positive, just really awesome queer-accepting queer counselors. They're great to work with, in my experience with them.
1: Yeah, and Rick Wilkes thriving now, my business partner does sliding scale as well to try to be accessible. Um one just one thought is yeah. if you can appreciate what you're doing, the very fact that you're listening to this podcast and <laughs> you spent this hour with us hearing different ideas, hearing everything that Victor's brought together, like that's amazing. You just did something for yourself. Your brain knows there's different options out there, giving yourself options and ideas. It's really powerful. So congratulate yourself, celebrate yourself, and know that you're on your way.
0: Absolutely. Kathy, thank you so much for your time and for meeting with me and speaking. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Intimate Interactions. I appreciate you. The intro music was Lullaby for Democracy, and the outro was Ladies Take Me With You, both by Dr. Turtle, published under Creative Commons. I want to offer a special thank you to each and every Patreon supporter who helps me with show costs, food, and bills every month. I see you helping make this show, and if you haven't gotten the chance yet, you can go check out patreon.com slash victorsalmon. Thanks for your time, and talk to you soon. Appendix. Remember those learning resources I promised you? Here they are. Rethinking Narcissism by Dr. Craig Malkin is a book and audiobook that gave me great perspective on people in my life with narcissistic traits. It helped me understand reasons why I felt I needed to be in the spotlight, as well as why I was terrified of being called a narcissist. It positively changed my life, and I recommend it to anyone afraid of being called out for being self-centered, selfish, obnoxious, attention-hogging, or narcissistic. If any of those made you visibly cringe, you might want to consider reading this book. Quiet, The Power of Introverts by Susan Cain is a book and audiobook that talks about the history of American views on introversion, as well as research on how we got to a place where it had become a bad word. It describes strategies introverts use to recharge energy after doing socially intense things and normalizes introversion. The Whole Brain Child by Dr. Daniel Siegel, MD, and Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, PhD, may sound intimidating just from the authors, but it taught me so much about my own psychology, and it's so accessible. It's a book written by doctors to parents for how to best encourage healthy brain development and recovery from trauma in children. It's written in a language I think most could understand. And it changed how I saw my childhood and taught me strategies for coping. I highly recommend this book, even for adults, especially if you've undergone a lot of stress or trauma in your life. Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biography Becomes Your Biology and How You Can Heal, helped me find some meaning and camaraderie in my early traumatic experiences. If you've experienced any trauma before the age of 18, I'd encourage you to get the book. It goes over research connecting physical and psychological issues and suggests strategies on healing. Again, I prefer the audiobook version. Disclaimer. I apologize in advance if something I say discriminates against some folks. I'm open to being called in. Chances are in six months I'm going to look back aghast and see something horribly problematic I'm not proud of. I'm certainly not perfect and I'm trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. Along that line, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories, specifically that of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Tsawasan, and tsleil nations.